Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So this week we are discussing the influential Senegalese film Le Noir De, known in English as Black Girl. Written and directed by Ousmane Simben, this one-hour drama stars Mbissine Therese Diop as a young woman who travels from Senegal to France to work for a white French family in the 1960s. But while this seems like an opportunity for a new life, she finds herself trapped in a life of domestic drudgery by employers who show her no respect. So before we get into this excellent, classic and iconic film... Uh, small announcement, we are back on the Patreon. There's been a few months of kind of listlessness because of health issues. We have returned. We have done an excellent little episode on uh, the classic Nick and Nora Charles film, The Thin Man, delightful pre-code mystery comedy. So check that out. And in about two and a half weeks, directly after the Oscars on March 12th, we will do a post-Oscars podcast talking about all of our disappointments. I assume, because that's how this usually works. <laughs> yes, I'm prepared to feel bad, as always. So let's cross our fingers and hope that All Quiet on the Western Front doesn't win very much. Yeah, but if my it does, assumption is the Oscars cannot be as bad as the BAFTAs, which were a fiasco on many levels. <laughs> yeah, but we'll see. And yeah. we will have our opinions for you on the Patreon, and then we're planning some other stuff for the months ahead. So yeah, if you would like to support us and hear those fun bonus episodes, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. And we will uh, remind you again at the end of the episode. But yeah, thanks to everyone who is a subscriber. Of course, we appreciate you very much. And with that out of the way, we will now move on to this episode about, as you said, this incredible and very influential canonical film. This movie often is in a bit of an odd spot because it's kind of like the one film from the African continent that gets put on the list of like films that, you know, film studies PhD students have to watch, which it's I like think this is this and like Tukibuki, which I've not yeah, seen. Which is a lot of weight to put on a movie. However, this film is really incredible. So it can bear it even if it's sort of an unfortunate situation. I saw this at a repertory screening I don't know, maybe eight years ago. It was quite some time ago. And I didn't know very much about it at all. And I was really blown away. And I rewatched it for this episode and I hadn't remembered it very well and was once again really amazed by it. So I'm excited to discuss. And yeah, you can watch this for free on archive.org and probably other places too, because it's one hour long. It may even be on YouTube, but archive.org, high quality and has subtitles and so forth. Yeah. So as you mentioned, this is directed by Usman Semben, who is a, again, very, very important and influential Senegalese director. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on him? He has a very interesting sort of backstory in life, which play into this movie. Yeah, definitely kind of a renaissance man, many different elements to his career and life story. He was born in Senegal in 1923 and was expelled from a French-run school for being too rebellious. He was a very kind of individual and self-driven person. His first language was Wolof, which is a West uh, African language, but he also spoke Arabic and French, obviously, because uh, many of his films are in French, including this one. So when he was a young man, he worked various menial jobs before he was drafted into the French colonial armies for World War II, followed by 
factory and dock work where he got involved in labour unions and this kind of kick-started his political evolution. He was extremely political in his art and in his life and just a very kind of influential activist. So he was injured in a workplace accident in 1951, so like when he was in his late 20s and during his convalescence he read a lot of socialist literature and became a prominent member of the intellectual left and labour movement in Senegal. Um, you can read a bunch about this. There's an article on the Criterion website that I can link to that kind of goes into a lot more of his political background, essentially. But um, he started writing novels in the mid-50s. Uh, his first novel was called The Black Docker, and he was quite a successful writer. He was known for writing complex female characters, which is very relevant to this film, which is obviously has a female protagonist. Not always the case for a 20th century political men geniuses. Um, not always the most feminist figures. But one interesting thing I found out by, while kind of researching the backstory of this film is that, of course, it's known as being like really influential and groundbreaking as a piece of African cinema, which in itself is kind of a wild phrase because that's a whole continent. But in the case of the French colonized nations, the government basically banned black people from making movies for decades. So um, just to kind of summarise this, here's like a quote from the Criterion Channel. Because of an oppressive 1934 ruling called Le Décret Laval, named after the Vichy Prime Minister later executed for Nazi collaboration, Africans in French colonies had for decades been effectively banned from filming in their own nations, leaving the representation of African people there to ethnographers who, even when well-intentioned, risked exoticizing and dehumanizing their subjects. So this film came out in 1966, and that was basically three or four years after Africans had access to any of the infrastructure you required to make a film. So he was right in there at the beginning. There was a government department that basically helped to fund and also provided filmmaking education and resources to African filmmakers to like kickstart their careers at this point. So he made two short films in the early 60s and then Black Girl, which is an hour long, is his first feature movie. And it's the first movie by a sub-Saharan African director to receive international attention. And it's the only film that was rejected by this French government ministry of cooperation because it was too political and too direct about being basically about how awful the French colonial government and society was. Like this whole movie is all about colonization and the idea that like even when people are not technically under the control of a government anymore, they are still controlled by the wider apparatus of colonialism. There's a lot going on here. It's like technically a domestic story about three characters in a house, but actually just like far wider and more political in a ton of interesting ways. Yeah, he was always very kind of pushing boundaries and he had to self-fund most of this movie on a shoestring budget. But then he went on to have a very successful career as a filmmaker after his career as a novelist. And he made several movies in both Wolof and French through to 2004. And then he died in 2007 at a ripe old age. Yes. And I wanted to add that the film he made in 2004 was called Mulade and it premiered to rave reviews at Cannes. However, I saw that movie in 2006 or 2007, so pretty soon after it you know, was made in a high school English class on world literature. God bless my high school English teacher, Bill Ray, who was just an amazing, is an amazing man. And I don't remember it very well, because obviously that was a long time ago. But in terms of sort of connecting that movie to some of the stuff you've been talking about, it is a movie about 
women in, I assume, Senegal. Again, I haven't seen this movie in a long time. But who are enduring female genital cutting and sort of the women in the community dealing with this and all about the female experience and the kind of conversation that like women have without men present that you often don't expect male artists to be able to <laughs> to capture. And that's kind of what stayed with me about this film many years later, even though I don't remember it well, I really would like to rewatch it. And I think it's really remarkable and impressive that from his first to his last movie, I don't know very much about what he did in between except that he was making good films, that this concern with the Black female experience is central to what he's doing and in a way that feels so empathetic and real. I just am really impressed by that. And to make a movie about that subject matter, even in 2004, when obviously it was being talked about more, is still pretty bold. And so clearly his creative impulse to be like, I'm going to say the thing and I'm going to, you know we need to address this, didn't go away. But also he's interested in making really good art too. It's not like these movies are polemics. So um, yeah, yeah, I just think he's incredible. Yeah, I mean, you know, he was coming right out the gate with these films, which were very, I mean, I don't know if I would say transgressive, but clearly ruffling a lot of feathers among Mm -hmm. the establishment. Before we get into the film itself, uh, just to introduce the lead actress, At the time, a non-professional actress, she was a young woman who was training to be a seamstress and kind of went on to have a career in textiles, but her name is Imbicine Therese Diop, and uh, she also appeared in Usman Sabin's film Emite in 1971, and uh, a couple years ago, you may have heard of the film Cuties that was on Netflix and was very controversial. She was in that too, but she, she has not had like a long film career. She went on to other careers in the meantime. Yeah, she's, um, she's really interesting in this movie, and I kind of like I don't know very much about her but I kind of like that she's done a couple roles and also done other stuff and I don't know I always like when people who are pretty young when they have a breakout are like I'm just gonna kind of have a life also like I mean who knows what how much of that was her own decision but um I also always think it's neat when a much older actress or actor sort of pops up later and has a part but the entire movie basically is from her point of view and she's in basically every shot so we'll be talking about her a lot, for sure. So you already gave a sort of brief overview of the plot in the intro, but just to sort of reiterate that or expand on it a little bit. The basic setup of this film is that it's about a young woman played by Diop, who is named Diwana, and she is from Senegal and winds up looking for work and or working as a nanny for this white French colonial family in Dakar. And when they go back to France, they kind of persuade her to come with them. And she's very excited about the prospect of living in France, sort of exploring and discovering France. And when she gets there, she is essentially, I mean, essentially, she literally is trapped in their apartment. She's not being paid. She isn't working as a nanny. The kids are off at school. And, um, she's working as a maid instead, which isn't what she had been told she would be doing. And so the movie primarily revolves around the relationship between her and the white mistress, who is unbelievably unpleasant and just awful to her. Although you also understand that her life is 
not very enjoyable. I think the dynamic between the white couple is also really intelligently depicted. The husband is just kind of like useless and doesn't really seem clued into any of what's going on. But um, most of the movie takes place in this apartment, although there are also flashbacks to Senegal. And um, he really smartly goes through all of these kind of incidents that build up and build up and build up to make Duana's experience more and more unbearable. As you said, it's it's not even an hour, it's a little bit shorter, but he manages to pack a lot into that small amount of space. It doesn't feel like a yeah. short I mean, movie, the setup exactly. is so smart, kind of the contrast between her life in Senegal and the way life is when she moves to France, because, you know, you can tell there's a lot of poverty in her community. You can see why she wants to move to France and get one of these jobs. And there's lots of competition between other women of her age to get jobs as servants. So like she is picked because there is a bunch of women who are competing to become Madame's nanny. And she's the one who sort of holds back and doesn't compete. So clearly Madame is like, oh, I want the quiet one. But when she's working for this family in Senegal, it kind of seems like quite a nice gig. Like she's hanging out with these kids that she likes. There's this big house. It doesn't seem like a really exhausting or unpleasant job. And she's not treated that badly by her employers. So like she has every reason to think that she's going to have a great experience when she moves to France. And once she gets to France, basically you can see that not only is her life different, the couple's life is different because, you know, they are benefiting from colonialism enormously in their Senegalese house because in France, they're just living in like a small apartment on the French Riviera. Like they are not rich in France, which is how these things work. And also Madame is clearly frustrated because she doesn't really have much power in her life there. But then, of course, as soon as Diwana arrives in France, like she is basically locked in this house. She is not taking care of the kids, really. She becomes their maidservant and is just doing housework and cooking all day, which is not what she wanted. And there's this really fantastic kind of underlying theme to do with her outfits which were also made by the actress who was a seamstress she has these beautiful outfits because she's this you know young girl who's expecting to have an exciting social life and get to explore this French town so she's come with these really cute outfits and heels and jewelry and stuff that she is wearing around the house because she is not allowed to leave and she keeps expecting to get paid and go and spend her money but like a the bosses are withholding her pay and B, she's not allowed to leave. And then the wife starts getting even more controlling and probably jealous because, you know, there's a beautiful young woman living in her house with her husband and is like telling her off and getting really angry because she's wearing these cute outfits and being like, you need to know that you're a maid. You need to be wearing this like maid outfit and not heels and this sort of thing. So it's like every element of her life is being controlled to a degree that is completely unnecessary and only exists out of cruelty and out of Madame's desire to exert power over something because she doesn't have that much power and freedom in her own life. So it's this really smart and kind of stark depiction of this race gender dynamic between a white woman and a black woman. Yeah, and the clothes are so important in the movie, partly because it's basically taking place for the most part in one location, which is a pretty stark sort of like mid-century apartment. There are a lot of shots of these big apartment blocks that look very much Le Corbusier, right? Like, they're kind of concrete and white. And there's, you know, inside, there's not a lot of decoration either. And she has these really pretty outfits that kind of stand out a little bit inside this blank space. And 
the fact that she keeps wearing the heels is so, like, on top of the dresses even, is so interesting because obviously that's really uncomfortable. Like, you're, you're being a maid wearing heels, but the shoes and the dresses and jewelry and the way she does her hair is all crucial to her maintaining a sense of identity that is independent from her job. But her job has completely subsumed her identity because they're not allowing her to do anything else. So this thing that feels in a way, or could feel in a way superficial or symbolic, is actually incredibly vital to this young woman. And as the movie sort of progresses, you see her abandoning the clothes more and more. And then there's a moment later on where she rebels and does dress up all the way again. And then again, the mistress is just like, no, you have to take them off because you're just a maid. And that feels like almost more degrading than anything else in the movie. Although there's lots of other degrading stuff that we could describe, right? The idea that she's not allowed to have any sense of personhood through her dress and self-expression, right? Which of course is not like that idea of like the maid having to wear an outfit is not unique to this movie. But the fact that she's literally not allowed to leave the apartment is so confining. And there's this kind of subtle thread of just sexual jealousy. There's no point where she's being like sexually harassed by the man really but there's a point where he kind of looks at her and you can tell that the wife is just like really uncomfortable with this situation the main point where that actually comes into the foreground is there's this incredibly awkward horrible dinner party scene which is kind of morbidly funny where she cooks some of like her own food from senegal for all of these white french dinner guests and there's this line in her monologue like um all of her thoughts are narrated in french by like a separate actress but um she cooks one of her own meals for this party and she's like thinking in her internal monologue oh i've made it like really unspicy so these white people are gonna like it and then there's all this dialogue (laughs) from the 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 dinner guests being like this food is so spicy i'm so excited to have this like exotic meal from far away so it's all all these very recognizable racist microaggressions (laughs) and also one of the dinner guests kisses her and is like really kind of talking about how he's never kissed a black girl before. So there's this really kind of unpleasant dynamic there to her serving them through this dinner party. And it's like in this tiny apartment where she will be eating alone in the kitchen. Like it's all pretty grim in that regard. Yeah. And the, I mean, obviously that guy kissing her is completely disgusting. And the most obvious display of just like, you are an object and therefore I can just do whatever I want with you. But it's not just him doing that. It's the mistress, madame, coming back into her little kitchen room, which is really close. Like it's an apartment. It's very close to the center room. Like she can hear everything that they're saying. Being like, it was all in fun. And she hasn't even complained, but it's like this additional sort of like, she clearly knows it was bad, meaning the, the white lady. But she's sort of pushing down immediately, being like, no, 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 it was fine. And that combined with, like, the exoticization of, like, you have to cook, like, your food. Which isn't even, they're just like, we want rice. And she's like, what? Why all these people? (laughs) It's like every meal. It's like, I'd love some wheat. (laughs) But I think the way they're kind of commodifying her and the experience of having 
lived in Dakar through her is really interesting in the context of this sort of French colonial situation. And conversely, how she, when she's still living in Dakar, romanticizes France, right? Because it's a classic, very familiar phenomenon that the colonizer becomes an object of fascination and romance to the colonized subject. And so all of this French culture in some form is accessible to people in Senegal, but in a sort of narrow way. And as you said, like they're clearly, or she is clearly living in poverty. Although she has obviously a loving family and it doesn't seem like she's starving or anything, but compared to this family living in this big house, obviously that's going to seem desirable to like a naive young woman who's just like, oh, this seems cool. And also genuinely, like a lot of the appeal for her is like, it's definitely an au pair situation where she's a young person who wants to go out and party. Like she genuinely thinks that she is going to be able to just go out and hang out and explore and go to bars and stuff. Whereas her employers do not really view her as human. But she has a boyfriend in Senegal who's kind of like a young intellectual who kind of like works in the government in some capacity. And he doesn't have the same view of the French as any kind of aspirational group. And he doesn't think she should go to France. And we get on the one hand that he's right, but he's also a little bit of a buzzkill, right? And so he has a little bit of this sort of like, well, I'm the man and sort of I I want to... And he also has more options in his life. Absolutely. And he kind of, it's not that he wants to control her exactly. He seems like a nice boyfriend, but he doesn't totally get that she, as you said, doesn't really have many options. And that her options are basically like, marry this guy, although we don't know if that really is an option, or go to France. And if she stays with him, then that is... You know, her life changes a bit, but not that much. And the prospect of going to France in her mind is so much more exciting. But either way, it's kind of like being subordinate to one group, right? So she has this idea that France is going to be really thrilling. Clearly part of the reason or the primary reason that they have employed her as a maid in France A, it's because they don't have to pay her anything, so that's a great exploitive situation for them. But also that they kind of wish they were still in Senegal, or at least the husband does for sure. And she adds something exotic to their home setup. And so they can kind of be like, well, we're interesting because we lived in Senegal and we have this black maid. And like, isn't it great that our friends can come over and we can pretend to be more interesting than we are by virtue of this person who we've transformed into an object who's like an accessory to our life, right? And we think, often I think, think of colonialism as a more literal extractive phenomenon, but the sort of like culturally extractive part of it is very on show here too. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of, there's like the sliding scale of, you know, from people who went on study abroad and get a bit annoying, which is like the easy <laughs> mode. And then the hard mode is like people who just fully try and pretend that they're Native American and appropriate someone else's culture. And this is also at like the grim end where they've essentially kidnapped someone. I mean, there's this there's this recurring 
shot of a mask that Diana gives them as a gift at the beginning of the film when she's first working with them and kind of wants to get into their good books but also genuinely seems to like them she gives them this mask that she purchases um, which is just like a traditional Senegalese mask and they kind of put it as part of their decor and they have several other pieces of just local art in their house and then when they reach this apartment in France it's then placed on the wall in this kind of very isolating imagery where it's just this one face in this white blank wall because the whole apartment as Morgan said is just this kind of white box basically and this just becomes this kind of recurring thing throughout the film where she like toward the end when she's rebelling she takes the mask back but it also is this like very familiar symbol both I think in like other movies and in real life where like you will see people who have an African mask on their wall as a piece of just sort of usually it's like oh you went on vacation somewhere or like it's kind of contextless but also racialized and I couldn't think of what other films I've seen this in but I've definitely seen it in films where the camera will just like cut to there being an African mask on the wall to symbolize that like some white homeowner is just like kind of dubious but the one thing I could remember from really recently is the tv show The Good Fight which is excellent where it's a law show spin-off about It's got an ensemble cast, but the introductory protagonist is this older white lady who's this very successful kind of Hillary Clinton-esque liberal figure. And she goes to work for an all-black law firm. And there's a scene where she's kind of unpacking all of her decor for her office. And there's just like a bunch of like African masks. And she realizes like, oh, I I can't hang those up here, you know? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I was in an apartment once where this was the, the situation. Not of someone I knew particularly well or liked this was a long time ago but yeah i mean so that hasn't gone away and it's so i mean it's kind of funny it's like well that's such obviously like a danger danger zone sign and yet people don't know it but in terms of this movie it's an incredibly effective tool because as you said initially in the sort of beginning of the movie when we see their house in senegal and dakar They have several of these objects. So this one mask doesn't stand out as much. It is a little bit like, okay, these like colonizers have all of this native art on their walls. But at the same time, they are living there and the whole house feels more just like local. And so you're like, okay, well, whatever. They've they've got the local style going on. When they go back to France, they have this one thing. And it's sort of the exclusive object in the apartment, which otherwise is just this mid-century modern apartment and it feels unbelievably exoticized and is connected to diana because she gave it to them and she is the other exoticized object in the apartment right and as you said when she's sort of rebelling later in the movie she takes it back and she and the mistress wind up having this fight like they literally are grabbing each end of the mask and the camera kind of spins around with them because the mistress is just outraged because she gave it to us, and so it's ours. And, of course, Duana feels like, well, no, it's mine. And also, she's completely isolated from every element of her culture. Yes. She's illiterate, so she can't write to and for her mother. Um, So when her mother writes her a letter, her employers have to read it to her, and then they write her reply, and they write this fake reply talking about how great her experience is and how much fun she's having and stuff. It's incredibly grim and controlling. And then she tears up this letter. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that scene is, I mean, all the scenes are interesting, but I think that scene is really interesting because it more essentially involves the husband, who we haven't talked about as much, who I think is totally fascinating. I mean, I those, think- those actors are both great. Obviously, Madame has like a bigger role, but they're such like recognizable types and they're also really 60s. And viewing it as a modern viewer, the fact that it is so 60s feels like maybe it just rings differently than it probably did at the time. Because I feel like you look at it and it's like, oh, it's like the modern era. It's this like cool kind of happening period. And it's like, no, these guys are like nightmares and they're very boring and like bourgeois creeps. <laughs> yeah, the names of these actors who I don't think did a ton else, they don't have Wikipedia pages, um, are Anne-Marie Jelinek and Robert Fontaine. Part of what I like so much about them is that they look like real people, which is something we talk about a lot. But like, she's obviously very good looking, but has aged a little bit. And it's the sort of like, you know, attractive wife of someone who you might actually encounter in real life, as opposed to, you know, Catherine Deneuve or something, who is just so outrageously beautiful that it's sort of impossible, I mean, to imagine her in, like, a real-world situation. And then he just has, like, a normal kind of weird face. And so it's very easy to imagine them as just sort of, like, he's, like, middle management or whatever he's doing. We don't ever really find out about his job. But she, the feeling from her of just, like, desperation... And bitchiness is extremely strong. I mean, she's just awful. But like in a way where you still do get a little bit of the sense of like what is driving her, right? Like she's obviously desperately miserable. I think he is like the performance and characterization of him is great because we don't get the sense that he's like an evil man. He's really clueless on every level and kind of just useless. So like his wife I mean wife he's very is, disconnected and has yeah. no kind of sense of self-reflection which is extremely apparent during the finale which I think we should discuss quite soon. Yeah. So just before we get to that, the way he behaves kind of up to this point, particularly in that letter writing scene. It's not that the movie's presenting him as a particularly good guy. It's just that as you said he's so sort of like not reflective about anything. He clearly doesn't get that his wife is miserable. But it's not that he's being cruel to her. It's just that he's not paying any attention. So like she kind of has a couple moments where she's sort of, you know, annoyed and flustered about something or is kind of complaining to him. And he's like, I'm just going to read my magazine. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm just kind of not interested. I mean, kind of one of the points of this is a piece of anti-colonial art is that they're both living in a system that allows them to be immensely cruel and damaging to someone without really trying. Yeah. And... From him, that's so apparent because he he defends Duana a couple of times, right? And not in a sense where it's coming from some great place of moral courage or anything, but the wife will sort of complain about her in a really outrageous way. And he's like, well, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, think, I think she's just trying to do this. And he just seems really hapless. And when they get this letter from her mother, her mother's like, how could you possibly have not sent us money? Like, we're struggling so much. And he's just sort of like, oh, oh, we have to deal with this. Like, we have, let's write let's write her, her letter back, you know, like, and here's what you're going to say. And he kind of writes the intro for her and is like, you know, I'm doing very well. And then it's sort of like, and so what do you want to say next? Having already written this intro that's not authentic, right? But again, it's not from a place of, pernicious evil it's from just total 
cluelessness, which is almost worse because he's also just not seeing the situation at all. And he then kind of goes in and is like, oh, well, you know, if you want your wages, like, here they are. And he just gives her a bunch of money, clearly having not thought at all about the fact that she obviously needs the money. Like, this, Yeah. You know? I mean, it's this very direct microcosm of the idea of a country colonizing another country that's like gajillions of miles away and everyone who's living in France is basically just not thinking about Senegal or the people living in Senegal or any other like French colonies. And then at some point something bad will happen and they'll throw money at it. Yeah. And she like collapses on the floor weeping and he clearly just like doesn't really know what to do. And this sort of leads into the climax and sort of fallout of the climax, which do you want to describe a bit what then happens? Yeah, so if I recall correctly the kind of order in which this happens she starts packing her bags and you kind of assume that she is just going to leave um, but in fact what happens is Duana kills herself she slits her own throat and then the final scene of the film is the the man returning to Senegal and he like brings her belongings back to her mother in their town and tries to give her mother this money as compensation of guilt and then the mother rejects this and then kind of the final shot of the movie is this little boy is a kind of spectator who has this African mask and is kind of looking through it and that's the end of the movie. Yeah, there's this little boy who it's not clear if he's related to Duana. We see them interacting earlier in the movie. It's possible he's your younger brother or just, you know, a friend, whatever. And then he reappears at the end of the movie when this guy goes and tries to give the belongings and and money to her mother and um the mask is kind of on top of the suitcase and the little boy picks it up and runs after the man like a ghost or something yeah who's trying to get back to his car like his car can't can only get so far into this little village and the man is unbelievably unnerved by this and is sort of outrunning him which also is so sort of symbolically appropriate or resonant or I don't know what word, but yeah. like it's a little boy, <laughs> like it's a tiny child. And this adult man is obviously so unnerved by, by this, this like avatar of guilt following yeah. him. And the boy kind of winds up on top of this bridge that kind of leads over some of these sort of makeshift buildings as the and watches the man drive away and the last shot of the movie is him sort of like lowering the mask off of his face and um i i just there's something about that image that i found i found really haunting as well like it works on a deep sort of cinematic level and the whole movie obviously is very intelligently directed because Duana doesn't speak very much. We hear her voiceover, as you said earlier. The way she's captured in images is really important, but there's not a lot of that like pure symbolic imagery in the film. It's like, this is what she's dealing with in this apartment, right? And so to end on that note that kind of widens out the sort of metaphysical scope of what the movie is doing, I think is just so bold. And we've just gone through seeing her like in the bathtub having killed herself, which is really shocking. As well as he shows like a newspaper 
which is a classic Hollywood thing, right? Like, films from that era love to have newspapers in them. And we zoom in on, like, this tiny little notice about this woman dying to sort of signify, obviously, how insignificant this incident was in the sort of grand scheme of things. And... I had not remembered this is how this movie ended. I didn't remember much of the detail about it. And so when we got to this point, I was like, oh God, like this is really dark. And I think, you know, pretty bold in a kind of Afro-pessimist way, right? Like he's not suggesting that there is a solution to this sort of colonial relationship. Like it's just destructive. And reminded me a bit of the kind of like 19th century novels with main like female main characters often who are having an affair which obviously isn't what this movie's about but and just wind up killing themselves at the end because the society is just like too difficult to sort of deal yeah it's with. like an unsolvable problem yeah and that's exactly what's going on here albeit from a different sort of like societal angle yeah i mean it's it's pretty fascinating that this was the first sort of major international film out of africa given how like non-conciliatory it is yeah. ultimately I mean, I was very interested to kind of look at how it was received because obviously this film is now considered to be iconic and kind of essential viewing and is being analysed in great depth by people who are far more smart and educated than we are. But even though it did win, it won a couple of prizes at the time, one of which was the Prix Jean Vigo, which is a French prize that's given to basically a first feature film each year. So for a kind of context, last year's one was the film Santo Mare, which we've spoken about and is wonderful. So it's that kind of film, like lower budget, interesting young filmmaker. So he won that for this. But the Western critical establishment was like less impressed. And when you look at a few of these reviews, they don't seem to even get it. It's a classic situation of, you know, I think we've discussed kind of older films in the past by black filmmakers where you'll look at the critical establishment's response and it'll just be like, wow, they just literally didn't get it. Like they were so kind of blinkered by, you know, whiteness. <laughs> Roger Ebert thought the film was slow and wasn't very interested and didn't think it had good character development. And I read the review from the New York Times. It's reviewing two African films that were kind of screening at the same time at a cheap theatre in New York. But basically this New York Times critic thinks that it's kind of too didactic and overly weighted towards the African protagonist, like it's not sympathetic enough toward the white characters, <laughs> while also finding the white characters more sympathetic than the film intends, because this critic kind of describes the husband as sort of confused and considerate, you know, and just doesn't doesn't really take it very seriously, essentially. Like it just has this slightly condescending undertone, which I guess is kind of the the curse of the New York Times is that like it's <laughs> very conservative and condescending even though there's also great journalism coming out of there there's a lot of kind of bigotry and lack of progression but yeah I mean we're speaking in a very specific moment about the yeah. New York Times <laughs> we're, yeah. we're in a bad time for the Times <laughs> but yeah that was kind of the the reception at the time was it wasn't like a hugely popular film but like it has just become this incredibly important piece of cinema and has been discussed a lot like in the past few years as well especially since more people have been kind of seeking out films by African filmmakers and by black filmmakers yeah I mean we can wrap up soon but I kind of also wanted to talk about Nanny because I find that really interesting in this context yeah I'm really curious we we discussed this 
briefly on a film festival episode, I think, but I haven't seen this movie, so I'm very curious to hear you talk a little bit about the connections between the two of them. Yeah, so you may have heard of this film. It came out last year. It's a horror movie. It's an American horror film by Nikiatu Jusu, who is a film studies professor, if I recall correctly, and also has done some short horror movies that were very acclaimed. And because I watch every single horror movie that comes out every year, <laughs> I was very excited to watch this. It had a lot of acclaim during the festival circuit. It won the Grand jury prize at Sundance impressed people and then Amazon bought it for a bunch of money I had very mixed feelings on this especially because it takes a lot of inspiration from Black Girl in a way that not in a plagiaristic way but just like there's a lot of kind of paying tribute to it and it has a similar kind of premise where the main character is a Senegalese immigrant in New York and she's a young woman who has left her son behind in Senegal and is trying to raise money by working as a nanny for a white couple. The lead actress is Anna Diop, who is absolutely incredible. She just blew me away in this movie. I look forward to seeing her again in something else. But um, the film itself was actually kind of less politically and psychologically astute about the same topics as Black Girl. Some parts of it were modernized in a way that made the racial dynamics more obvious and less thoughtful, I thought. And in general, it kind of functioned better as a horror movie. There's obviously elements that like are drastically different. It's a lot more spiritual because it is a supernatural horror film and it kind of is combining this racist tension within this house with a supernatural subplot as well. There is a scene in this where they literally have the character who's like a little old lady who then explains a bunch of mythology in an expository monologue. And I was like, okay, it's that kind of movie now. But it's also trying to be a film that has like a lot of commentary on kind of racial dynamics and immigration. I mean, it's always interesting when you watch a modern film that is so closely following similar themes and stories to something that's perceived as like, a very classy, iconic piece of cinema because like, it's never going to measure up, which is kind of part of the issue with this. It wasn't one of my favorite horror movies last year, but I would kind of classify it as pretty good, especially in the sense that I would really like to see the director's kind of next films because she was very good at the horror stuff and making it scary, if you get what I mean. (laughs) Well, I think the decision to turn it into an explicit horror movie is kind of both interesting and perhaps misguided. Um, Because, I mean, I am not a horror aficionado on your level remotely. That would be a lot of effort that I simply don't have at the moment. But I love a horror movie. So I'm not saying that, like, that's necessarily a bad idea, like, in the abstract. But I think part of sort of where we are with horror at the moment is this, like, huge lasting influence of Get Out, which obviously is a great film, but hasn't necessarily led to a lot of other great films by other people and so much of what's great about this movie is the sort of psychological awfulness but once you translate that into like something more literal in terms of like a horror element it seems like it would seep some of the subtlety out of it and I don't think that's necessarily true and like just the abstract of coming up with an idea but specifically when you're building off of a pre-existing classic it, it just feels like yeah there are problems that would I mean, emerge from it's that. It's one of these you know? things where like, it probably depends on whether you've seen this other film. But to me, I, I was also like, when I was reviewing this, I was comparing it to other films that are explicitly political stories about domestic workers and their employers, because this is a really classic gothic trope, as you will know as a yeah. Victorian novel yeah. enthusiast. Oh yeah. <laughs> so this film is kind of a combination of Black Girl and also this very classic horror trope of a young woman who then enters the house of a dangerous 
employer as a governess or whatever you know yeah and i was kind of looking at recent horror films that i think did it better and there was a few right because like good manners was a brazilian werewolf movie that's about a black nanny who moves into a white single mother's apartment and it's kind of helping her through her pregnancy and then you gradually realize the pregnant lady is a werewolf very cool movie very distinctive there was also this little horror movie called dearest sister which is about this rural teenage girl who ends up caring for her rich cousin and is terrifying and obviously also Parasite, which is kind of working on a slightly different, you know, it's different stuff going on. But it's like those films felt like they had a better handle on combining classic genre horror kind of stuff and the political elements. Whereas this, it kind of made sense to me that it was an Amazon release because when you get these big streaming genre releases, they're often a lot kind of simpler and spend more time explaining stuff in simple terms to the audience yep. than films that are kind of working in more of an indie sphere where stuff is edgier and more politically ambitious. Yeah, yeah, that all totally makes sense to me. And I think, again, having not seen this movie, but it makes sense to me that you would be like, well, this is a little bit obvious precisely because this is territory that has been trod by... <laughs> so many movies and books, right? Which doesn't mean there's not still stuff to say, like domestic and service workers, like we live in a service economy now in the United States. So that's obviously a huge issue that I hope there are many more interesting movies about it. But it's not like this is the first film to touch on that. I mean, some people thought this film was a masterpiece. You know, it got this big prize. It got a lot of really positive reviews. So it kind of, you know, your mileage may vary. (laughs) Most of the people I know who saw it, I think were on your wavelength but again i'm completely just like well here's what i have observed like i haven't watched the film (laughs) regardless though the fact that this movie is being kind of meaning black girls being reinterpreted still as still kind of in people's minds in that way is really remarkable both in terms of just like its longevity as an important piece of historic art but also the salience of it politically and emotionally now like it not that it doesn't feel dated like it clearly is from the 60s both aesthetically and sort of politically but there's still so much to get from it in terms of what it's saying about life today I think which isn't how I necessarily measure old movies but I think it's always interesting and exciting when they still feel present so Certainly, I think anyone listening to this who hasn't seen it can infer that we think this movie is great and you should watch it, but it really is worth seeing. And it's so short. Like, it's so easy to watch this movie and it's free on the internet. What more convincing do you need? And thank you all for listening, as always. Next week. (laughs) Yeah, next week. (laughs) Oh my god. Barring an act of God. Force majeure. We will finally be covering the Amazon television show Patriot, which we had planned to cover in September before I got sick with COVID. I actually don't know how long ago our lovely patron Nicole made the request for this. I don't want to. I don't want to look it up. Thank it's you for too your patience. Upsetting to me. We also yeah. have several other Patreon requests coming up too. I believe. Uh, but yeah. I mean, regular listeners are probably familiar with the title of the show Patriot because we've teased it several times. The hype levels are through the roof, but it is a comedy drama about an American intelligence officer who, due to a circuitous and absurd set of circumstances, has to go and work at like a piping company in Milwaukee. So it's about like a depressed spy going undercover at a really boring engineering company. It's very fun. It's got a lot of very funny engineering-based dialogue. And it features Kurtwood Smith, iconic American sitcom star. So, yes. 
and Terry O'Quinn, who played John Locke on Lost, which I know you didn't watch, but I'm sure many, many of our listeners did. I've watched this show previously. I love it. It suffered through, again, a force majeure situation, and now we will finally be talking about it. And as you said, we have several other requests that we're going to get to soon that have just been sort of languishing in a little Google document that I have. So thank you to everyone for your patience. And thank you for Patreon people for your patience. Uh, We're back. So go listen to the Thin Man episode if you've not heard it. (laughs) Yes. Again, that is at patreon.com slash overinvested podcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, You can find my work on The Daily Dot, where I've reviewed a few movies recently, including the incredibly appalling Ant-Man 3 colon (laughs) Quantumania. And you can find me on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor, where you can find all of my horror film reviews, many a week. And on Tumblr, also (laughs) at Hello Taylor. Yes, you can also find me on Letterboxd at ML Davies, though I'm not really watching movies right now because of COVID. And on Instagram at Morgan Lee Davies, the podcast is also on instagram at overinvested podcast on tumblr at overinvested podcast on twitter at overinvested pod and our website is overinvestedpodcast.com see you next week bye